and welcome back to another episode of Unjustly. I am Stephanie and this is my co-host Sandy. Hi. So I hope everyone had a nice Thanksgiving. I think it's important to be extra thankful for the things we do have this year. I know a lot of people have had their fair share of hardships, but I hope that everyone was able to find something to be thankful for. Um, Personally, I'm thankful to still have a job and a new roof over my head during this pandemic, a caring husband, the best dog in the world, come at me, and a family that loves unconditionally. Sandy, what are you thankful for? Oh, you just sprung this on me. I did. (laughs) I guess I'm thankful... For same, um, all my family. I had a baby during the pandemic, mm-hmm. so <laughs> mm-hmm. I'm happy that went well. Um, and we still have our health and our jobs. Um, the pandemic didn't affect us like it did mm-hmm. a lot of other people, so we're really fortunate in that sense. Yeah. And um, we try to help others as much as we can. So I'm thankful that we're doing well. Yeah. So I'm also doing something I never thought I'd have the courage to do as I sit here recording here today. So um, that's a huge deal. So mm-hmm. I think that we're also very thankful to those of you who have been listening and oh, following yeah. along. We started a podcast during the we pandemic. We started a podcast during <laughs> the pandemic. Um, so yeah, there's a, I think in even in dark times, there's a lot to be thankful mm-hmm. for if you just kind of take a step back and, and see, yeah. see what's going on. So um, today I will be covering a story that was brought to my attention by my sister. Um, I had personally never heard of it, but it was pretty sensational at the time. So some of you may remember it. I know Sandy, when I told her what I was doing, um, she recalled it. So Mm -hmm. I had learned about it in a sociology class. See, and I'm so like baffled that I, maybe I just don't remember. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Because we might have taken that class together. Yeah. That's the weird thing is Mm -hmm. like, I really don't remember it. Um, either way, I did enjoy researching, um, the story because I feel like it's one of those stories in which motive is really, really hard to determine Mm -hmm. and can be viewed in different ways. And in many ways, this case reminded me of that viral picture of the white and gold dress that went around. Yes. That like some people swore like me that it was white and gold, but then others saw it black and blue or purple and black or whatever. You know what I'm saying? Yes. I remember that. Yeah, so it was white and gold. <laughs> it was white and gold. Like again, come at me. It was white and gold. Um, so I think this case, depending on your background, it's very likely that you'll hear this story and say it was racially motivated or racially influenced, while others simply see this as a product of the society in which it took place. So let's get into it. This is a story of Bernard Getz, the subway vigilante. My sources for the story today come from NYC and Chaos on PBS.org, the Netflix series Media by Trial, Wikipedia, and a Biography.com article on Bernard Getz. Let me set the scene for you because it's important that you really understand the world in which this incident takes place. New York City in the late 70s and early 80s was plagued by severe economic and political issues. The city was facing economic stagnation, industrial decline, and a looming threat of bankruptcy. Yes, New York City was on the verge of bankruptcy, which is kind of crazy to think about now. Mm -hmm. But in fact, one article described New York City as a dystopian society where street gangs ruled the city after the sun went down. Times Square's Disney stores were occupied by peep shows and drug dens, and you could go as far as saying that some neighborhoods resembled war zones with burned out buildings marred by urban decay. Oh my gosh. I know. It really was like Gotham, like Batman. Mm -hmm. That's what I imagine. 
In response, New York began laying off city workers and cutting municipal services such as sanitation and after-school programs. The already high unemployment rates got even higher, and in search for jobs, an approximate 820,000 people fled to the suburbs, a movement that we now know as white flight. The cut in social services caused a feeling of neglect amongst many who had no choice but to stay in the city while crime rates rapidly increased as drugs, vandalism, and theft became the new norm. All over New York, the people had lost faith in the criminal justice system. Homicides in the city were at all-time highs and the crack epidemic was raging. Crack cocaine and heroin had infested the streets of New York City and armed dealers fought one another as they battled for turf. Drug addicts were mugging New Yorkers so they could get the money they needed for their next hit. In fact, mugging in the city had become pretty much inevitable and because most people in New York would get from one place to another using public transportation, the New York City subway had become the most dangerous mass transit system on the planet. Isn't that crazy? Yeah. I've seen so many movies with subway stuff and it always looks creepy and scary. It really does. Mm -hmm. Yeah. In doing research, there were a lot of articles um, of just like pictures of what New York in the 70s and 80s looked like. Mm -hmm. And there were multiple that were focused just on the subway because the subway was so scary. And like the I mean, we see it in movies now, but Mm -hmm. like that was a reality. Like there was graffiti everywhere. There was just like trash everywhere. Like there were seedy people, you know, around every (laughs) corner. Like it was really scary. Yeah. So again, like this is just setting the scene for what's to happen. But just imagine like living in a a state of fear Mm -hmm. constantly. In the 80s, over 250 felonies were committed every week. Over the course of a decade, New York public transportation would lose over 300 million riders, largely because of its reputation as a hotbed of crime and drug use. Which is unfortunate because I feel like it theoretically it's a good form of transportation. No, I mean, it's, yeah, I I honestly wish San Diego was better about public transit Mm -hmm. um, because when, like, when we were on the honeymoon in, like, London, Mm -hmm. like, oh, yeah, all you use is the tube tube. Mm -hmm. and using the tube was so much fun. It was. I genuinely loved it. I love that I could walk places and then just hop on the tube and then end up somewhere else. So to me, like, that was an experience, but also, I mean, it helps the environment. Mm hmm. There's less traffic, you know, like all of these things that I wish San Diego was just better about. And I think that Mm -hmm. we're inching closer to it. (laughs) Like now the San Ysidro trolley goes all the way to UCSD. Oh, okay. Which wasn't around in our times and it's taken forever. Yeah. Um, But that's really nice that that you have that. Mm -hmm. Crime on the subway system was so high and New York was so unsafe that it gave rise to organizations like the Guardian Angels, which were founded by Curtis Sliwa. The group was created as an answer to the high crime rates that plagued New York City. With crime and crack on the rise and budget deficits and police presence on the decline, these volunteers worked to fill in the gaps needed to keep order in the city. Many New Yorkers were tired of living in a constant state of fear. Okay, so we'll get into it later. But up until now, I'm like, yes, the guardian angels make sense. Mm -hmm. Someone needs to be there to protect these people if law enforcement can't right for whatever reason and so i'm like all on board but then i think as we'll see these like vigilante groups are not always yes you know what i mean yeah i it think can i think it can take a turn for the worst very easily there's a very fine line yes. and i think that it's really hard to keep that line especially as organizations like this grow 
mm-hmm. right? And mm-hmm. it turns almost into like a mob. Yeah. You know what I mean? Because they, they kind of were kind of scary. I mean, like if I were walking into the subway and they were there, back in the days, New Yorkers knew that if they were seen, like you felt safe. Mm-hmm. But I think today, if I saw something like that, I'd be like, oh my God. Why yeah. Are you, why are you here? What are you doing? What's yeah. Your, you know, it's scary because they they have this purpose to protect, but I think it can very easily get to their head to where they now have this like authority figure type of thing without the background and without the training of having to actually be mm-hmm. an enforcer, like a law yeah. enforcement type thing. Yet they're trying to kind of take over that, right. and so it can get bad very quickly. Yeah, like I said, like there's just a very thin line. Mm-hmm. So Bernard Getz was born on November 7th, 1947 in Queens, New York, and was the youngest of four children. His father was a German immigrant who owned a bookbinding business and a 300-acre dairy farm. At the age of 12, his family life took a dramatic turn when his father was arrested on charges of molesting two 15-year-old boys. Oh. I know, which wasn't in the documentary, but I thought it was really interesting because i couldn't find a lot about his life prior to the incident so Mm -hmm. a lot of it is just the day it happens and then his life after Mm -hmm. and obviously the the trial and everything but i wanted to find something about his like youth like his childhood Mm -hmm. Um, and i thought that this was really interesting because if you watch his interviews or listen to his interviews which we'll put in um he just was very like weird he's like kind of awkward mm-hmm. very like i don't want to say that he was necessarily aggressive but he was very like passionate about his ideas of what was going on at the time to a point that it came off as a little bit racist scary and yeah. racist uh-huh. and and just very like he was very passionate he was just very passionate about what he felt yes and so it almost felt like he was he had like a little darkness in him and so when i read this about his father having been arrested for the molesting of the 15 year old boys starts to make sense it's something you know like maybe he he does have pent-up anger and maybe it should affect him yeah Mm -hmm. his father later pleaded guilty to disorderly conduct and to spare bernard from further embarrassment he was sent to a boarding school in switzerland he eventually came back to the states and enrolled at nyu earning a degree in electrical and nuclear engineering well he was smart he was super smart While Bernard thrived in the world of machines and precise calculations, dealing with people was another story. Getz was disturbed by what he considered a crumbling social structure of the city and pushed hard for city officials to clean up his neighborhood. So he was very much like going to city hall meetings and was... So again, like, I think in his head, he looked around and was like, this city is literally about to burn to the Mm -hmm. ground because everything is failing. And the government isn't doing anything. He was very much kind of like, he wasn't pushing for anarchy, but he felt that he was living in a society of anarchy because nothing was getting better. Mm -hmm. And the government wasn't helping and there was crime and all of these things. So like I said, he was very passionate about this and he wanted it to get better. I can understand how that's frustrating. Anybody would be frustrated. Mm -hmm. Yeah, 100%. I understand it, but I think he was pushed and snapped. I think that's the only way I could I could describe it is yeah. like he was already at his limit mm-hmm. and it he just couldn't take it anymore. In January of 1981, Getz joined the thousands of other New York City residents who had experienced a mugging. He was attacked by three teenagers at the subway station near his house. He escaped with only a knee injury, but the three teens faced no consequences for the attack which infuriated him. 
two of them ran away and then one went to be questioned or whatever mm-hmm. but the they didn't press any charges and they just let him go which why do they not press charges do they not have enough evidence against him i don't i don't exactly know they didn't really i couldn't really find anything mm-hmm. in detail about why they were let go i just read that two of them managed to escape one did go down to like police headquarters but he was only questioned then yeah let let off so after this um gets decided to apply for a gun permit in new york but his application was denied and um so in the documentary they talk about how hard it was to get a gun permit in new york at the time basically only people who like had an in with the mayor or who were really rich i believe could like were able to get gun permits it wasn't it wasn't an easy thing to do so what he did was he went to florida to obtain a gun and then brought it back with him to new york illegally to protect himself um from the streets basically and that's where it goes downhill and that's where it goes downhill (laughs) (laughs) yes because and he's in his interview his interview is really really interesting so Mm -hmm. i like recommend watching the documentary or just pulling up his interview because you can tell he's an intelligent man arguments that he is making Mm -hmm. make sense he was a person who wanted better for like the world that he was living in and he was very frustrated that that wasn't happening and that the people who should be pushing towards that just weren't doing it Mm -hmm. Um, and he said you know i did everything the right way i applied for the gun permit i went through the background check like i spent thousands and thousands of dollars i think he spent like twelve thousand dollars trying to oh my gosh get through the whole process and then at the very end they denied him so he was really mad that he was like i did this the right way like i did it the way that it's set up to be done yeah and i couldn't so i had to resort to To obtaining it illegally illegally. not a full-on argument but i understand like the frustration like i spent all this time and money trying to do it the right way to protect Mm -hmm. myself because Mm -hmm. clearly I was mugged and you guys did nothing. Mm -hmm. So I have to like now take take it it upon upon myself. But yeah. On December 22nd of 1984, Getz entered an empty Manhattan train carrying the unlicensed 38 caliber revolver. Also on the car were four teenagers, Troy Canty, Barry Allen, Daryl Cabey, and James Ramser. They were all 18 and 19. So they were 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 young men. Young men. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But still teens. Witness testimony later stated that Getz had barely taken a seat when the young men approached him asking for $5. When Getz refused, Canty responded, give me your money. In court, Canty said that they had asked for the $5, but that they had not threatened Getz. In fear that he was being set up for yet another mugging, Getz rose from his seat, unzipped his coat, and pulled out his gun. He went into a combat stance, gripped the revolver with both hands like a police officer would in the line of duty, and opened fire. He shot Canty in the center of his midsection. Mm. He then turned and shot Allen in the back. He fired his gun again, hitting Ramser in the arm and chest. And he fired a fourth time, but missed KB, who dropped to the ground. Getz would later say that as KB lay on the ground, playing possum, he walked over to him and told the teenager, you seem to be doing all right. Here is another. (gasps) No. He says this. Oh, that's awful. The interview is so matter of fact Mm -hmm. that it's like chilling because... He admits to all of this. He says, you can try me for murder. Like, I know I murdered them. Mm-hmm. Um, he, at one point, is, he says, kind of like, the only thing that went wrong was that I ran out of bullets. And when I when I was done shooting them, I planned on, um, like, plucking out their eyes with my keys. Oh, gosh. So, again, like, 
it would have been one thing if he had shot them and then was like if this was all in self-defense but mm-hmm. almost sounds confessions like all of these things it makes it sound like it wasn't just the fact that he was in fear of his life yes the shot hit kb's spine paralyzing him from the waist down the train came to a halt when someone pulled the emergency brake just before reaching the chamber street station a conductor entered the train car and saw the teens lying on the ground in pools of their own blood Getz told the conductor that the teenagers tried to jump him. He then managed to slip out of the car and into the dark subway tunnels. By the time the ambulances arrived, KB had already suffered permanent brain damage from oxygen deprivation to the brain and was paralyzed from the waist down. Recovery from his injuries was not possible, and to this day, he operates at the intellectual level of an 8-year-old. Oh, man. Getz, a man who was looking to vindicate a past trauma, ran from the scene of the crime. Of course. He also says that, like, he kind of just thought that it would all blow over. <laughs> we would just forget that it happened. Yeah, like, <laughs> uh, it's like, whatever. Like, look uh, it over. So he returned to his apartment, changed his clothes, rented a car, and for reasons unknown, headed to New England, where he would disassemble his pistol and take refuge in Concord, New Hampshire, in hopes that this this would just blow over. People are looking for a hero or they are looking for a villain, Getz told authorities during his 1984 interrogation. And this is literally true. Like, again, this goes back to like the picture. Depending on your past, depending on your experiences, you will see this man as a hero or you will see him as a villain. Mm -hmm. It just it is what it is. News quickly spread that a subway vigilante was on the run. He was nowhere to be found. Nothing was known about him. And there were four teens who had been wounded from his bullets. Receiving as much attention as the shooting were the alleged past actions of the four teens who were shot. Reports quickly circulated that the teens had prior arrest and that cops had found screwdrivers on three of the victims. The teens were reportedly going to use them to rob a video arcade, according to a report. None of those screwdrivers were drawn during the Getz shooting, however. So even though they had these on their, like in their possession, mm-hmm. they were never drawn. They never actually threatened him. Mm-hmm. They never, I mean... Of course, it could feel intimidating that there's, like, two people on your right, two people on your left. Yeah. Or, you know, given his background specifically, he had been mugged by three teenagers. Mm-hmm. He felt like he was in, like, he was in fear. He was mm-hmm. on the subway, which was a dangerous place at the time. Mm-hmm. He was surrounded. I- I'm sure it all kind of reminded him of this. But does that give someone the right to act on a fear without something actually having happened yet? Mm-hmm. And he didn't even give like a warning. No, he actually said that they said, give us five dollars. He doesn't say something or whatever. And then they said, just give it to me or whatever. And that he says, "Okay, I'll give it to you. And that's when he reaches for his gun. And so none of it. He he doesn't warn them like, hey, Uh get away or anything. Uh It's almost like he's playing into it and is like, "Okay, fine, I'll just give you the money. But then in response, shoots them all. Yeah. And if he shot one in the back, that's what they argued is like, how were you feeling threatened when someone had their back to you? Yes. And the bigger thing was the fact that he shot KB on the floor and he he didn't nothing happened and then returns to him and says, oh, you look like you're doing all right. Here's another one. Mm -hmm. At that point, it becomes premeditated. Right. Like 
you uh, you intended to shoot him. It wasn't like you were feeling threatened at that. The the other three, he says he's like, yeah, like I looked back at the one and he was shot, so that was good. Then I looked at this one and he talks about how he's he's kind of strange, but he talks about how like in the moment, like time slows down and your senses are heightened and you suddenly have this like larger uh, field of vision mm-hmm. in that um he's like it all happened in a fraction of a of like a second but in that moment I went and I checked on the one and I knew I had to shoot him in the midsection and so I got him in the midsection and then I went and I checked on all of them and so like KB was the last one Mm -hmm. and he had the like the presence of mind to be like oh I didn't get that one I need to get him sounds very methodical exactly it sounds very methodical and again he is a numbers guy. Mm-hmm. He is like, he has that background and maybe that's just the kind of person that he is. And maybe that's just how he understands things mm-hmm. and how he processes things. And that's okay. But we're going to get into like other things that he's said. It's hard to rationalize that for yeah. him and to accept that as he felt threatened. And so he did these things. Right. So sketches of the shooter were circulated and it became national news. Gets turned himself in into authorities on New Year's Eve in New Hampshire. Detectives in New York City were notified and went to New Hampshire where Getz confessed to what he had done. During his interrogation, Getz admitted that he had wanted to kill the teens. He said, I wanted to maim those guys. I wanted to make them suffer in every way I could. If I had more bullets, I would have shot them all over again. My problem was I ran out of bullets. So (laughs) again, like you want to believe that he really was just scared for his life. But then you hear things like this and it's just like, nah, dude, like you're crazy and you just committed a murder. Mm -hmm. And later we'll see that it was very likely that it was racially motivated, Mm -hmm. not in the sense that a lot of um, or not, I guess, in the way that maybe some other crimes are committed, but Mm -hmm. in the sense that like he had racial prejudices that made him view these men as threats just for being black teens. Mm -hmm. So that like in that sense, I think it was. Yeah. By the time his trial began, many people saw him as a hero who had every right to be fed up with the ever increasing crime wave. Many people identified themselves in Getz, someone tired of living in fear every time they stepped out of their doors. There were bumper stickers that said, ride with Bernie, he gets them. Because his last name is Getz. Oh, no. And they were sold all over the city. In fact, there was like um, in the documentary, I can't remember exactly what he was, but he was some sort of like, I want to say like some sort of state official or like mm-hmm. a, yeah, who was, they asked him like, oh, did you have one? He was like, absolutely. <gasps> because it just had become That's this awful. like sensational story yeah. all over New York City. And like they had um some sort of like meeting you know those like chamber meetings mm-hmm. that you see on tv so they had um they played a clip of it and they were talking about just like the crime rate and they were all saying like we get it like we understand not necessarily like why he did it but we understand that new york is ridden in crime mm-hmm. and that people are frustrated and someone brought him up and they're like we're not condoning what he did but i think a lot of us can understand why he would have done something like that this, I think, was before any of the actual footage had come out. Of everything that he said. Of everything that he mm-hmm. said. The documentary is kind of cool because they um, interview Curtis, the founder of the Guardian Angels. Mm-hmm. And so for like the first half of it, they don't show the full clip of the interview. And so it's making you think like, oh, I could see how this might be a right. thing. And so he's like talking about how 
the guardian angels kind of like really had his back and then towards the end of the documentary after they've shown everything he Mm -hmm. was like like it kind of got hard to like continue having his back because like he was just like he wouldn't shut up like every time someone asked him and put a mic in front of his face like he would talk about it and it just kept getting worse so it became harder and harder Mm -hmm. to have and this is what I said earlier to you that it was a media shit show when it happened and it really just depended on the narrative of who was telling it yeah According to a New York Times poll, 52% of the residents were generally supportive of his actions. His actions on the train divided the city, with those fed up of the crime ravaging New York calling him a hero and others saying that he was a racist who needed an excuse to shoot a person of color. However, Getz was so psychologically damaged by former muggings that in his mind, young blacks were the stereotypical type muggers. If the four boys had been white, he would have not assumed that they were out to mug him until they actually tried to mug him. So we're dealing with this kind of fear and overreaction that is soaked in race and bigotry. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. See, I mean, I feel like this is happening. Well, not, I don't feel this is still happening today. Yeah, it is. And I feel like it's more of less of like a this is my personal opinion mm-hmm. of how I'm depicting of what he was doing. I don't really think that he felt like he needed to have self-defense at that moment I feel like he was already out in anger and wanted someone to pay does that make sense like a vindication yes yes they so in the interview they said the detective is like so why these four Mm -hmm. and he was like basically he's like what kind of stupid question is like what do you mean and she was like well why these four like why them and he was just like miss they were going to play with me they were going to to um enjoy me and she was like well what does that mean to you and he was like what do you mean what does that mean to me like they were out to play with me and she was like well that's very subjective like Mm -hmm. that could mean a lot of things to a lot of different people so like explain to me what it means to you and he never goes into it but he talks about how he's like you don't need an actual weapon to like hurt people like the last time this happened like they pushed me through a glass door and so all of the things that he talks about is based on his experience with the previous mugging Mm -hmm. so yes i think that every time he stepped out of his door he was thinking that someone was going to mug him Mm -hmm. and so when you put him in this train car by himself with four black teenagers who might have resembled or physically look like Mm -hmm. the three that had mugged him before that got away i think that probably in his mind snapped something that was like this is my chance like if they could have maybe not even approached him and maybe right. he still would have done it. Same we'll, never, we'll obviously never know, but it's not hard to believe that he might have just... He was just waiting for the moment yeah. so that he can get his anger out mm-hmm. for what happened to him in the past. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Getz's lawyer was able to successfully argue a claim of self-defense. New York law allows deadly force and self-defense to thwart an attempted robbery. In the case of Getz, the four men did not show the screwdrivers to him although he claimed that one of the men had his hand in his pocket and there and therefore appeared to be in an unidentified object. In the case of Getz, the four men did not show the screwdrivers to him, although he claimed that one of the men had his hand in his pocket and there appeared to be an unidentified object. The defense centered on Getz's belief of impending physical harm if he did not comply with their demands for money, $5 worth. Getz faced a jury that included several people who had had experience with crime and fear of crime and as a result he was convicted for criminal possession of a handgun but found not guilty on the other charges he served less than a year in jail oh my god and so okay 
So both the prosecution and the defense wanted to find people who had experienced a mugging Mm -hmm. in the past. So the prosecution was looking for a jury that was comprised of people who had experienced mugging or some sort of like assault because they felt that these people would relate and identify with Getz in feeling that fear and feeling the need of defending oneself. Mm -hmm. While the defense wanted the same kind of people but to show and prove that you can experience something like this without actually committing a crime yeah. and shooting someone. Right. So that's what the jury was comprised of. Um, most of them were white, mm-hmm. of course. Um, and so, like I said, he served less than a year. I think it was like 250 or 252 days oh. for the gun charge, not the shooting. Oh, okay. Oh, no, but he was... He was, a, yeah, he was acquitted he was of acquitted the other of things. He only served time in jail because of the illegal gun possession. Did the jury see his interviews? They did. And so they... <laughs> I know. And again, it's so crazy because I can watch that and be like, this guy's deranged. Right. He clearly lost it and shot these four mm-hmm. children. But someone else might see that and be like, it makes sense. Like, I think I told you before we started recording, but there was a lot of black people who had his back, who supported him, who thought he should be free. And like I said, who saw him as a hero because they too had experienced crime and assaults and muggings. So for them, it was totally believable that this guy was simply just defending himself. But then you, of course you have like civil rights activists who are like, but he only thought that they were out to mug him because he had these like pre- preconceived notions, notions of, of like who a mugger would be. Yeah, I guess I don't agree, but understand that they are seeing this from a different lens, especially if they've already put people on the jury who have been mugged themselves. So they've been there, they've experienced, they've been fearful of it. So they're seeing it from that perspective, like we're sick and tired of it. Mm-hmm. Us as outsiders are like, but he's crazy. You know, it wasn't just a self-defense thing. Me and you can see his interviews and say he was planning this all along. You know, he was talking about picking their eyes out. Like that's Mm -hmm. not a self-defense thing after they've been shot. The big one was like the whole coming back to him and shooting him a second time. Like at that point, you've already kind of stood stood your ground. You've defended yourself. Mm -hmm. Like he was already on the ground. You weren't in fear and you weren't threatened anymore. So why go back? And shoot him. Mm -hmm. And then on top of that, be like, oh, you look like you're okay. Here's another one. Like that whole thing paints such an ugly picture. Mm -hmm. And it's so hard to to see that and just say he was just scared. At that point, he wasn't scared anymore. Yeah. You know, they were down. And he admits all of this, that the interrogation is crazy because he's admitting like, yes, I wanted to murder them. Yes, I would have kept shooting. Like, I understand that I'm going like that I could go to jail. And if you have to send me to jail, then so be it. And he basically, he like basically predicted how this would play out. Play out. He says like, you can send me to jail. I don't care. Like yeah. you need to figure this out. I think for him, which is crazy, he really just wanted to fix what was going on, even if it meant like he went to jail for it. And even, you know what I mean? But like, it's still just not okay. It's not okay. But I can see where the vigilante Community. term came yeah. from. Yeah. yeah. And so for those of you who haven't watched the documentary or haven't heard Bernie Getz actually going off, here's a, a clip of the portion of his interrogation. What happened here is I snapped. I sh- I, I, look, if I had more bullets, I would have shot them all again and again. The old, my problem was I ran out of bullets. And I was going to gouge one of the guy's eyes out with my keys afterwards. 
So in many ways, Bernard was useful to everyone on a mission. Civil rights activists used him to fight crime on the black community. The NRA and those who supported the use of weapons used him as an example of why the right to carry a weapon for self-defense was so important. And to those fighting crime, like the Guardian Angels, he had become the poster child for why organizations like their own and other vigilante groups were so critical. Following the conclusion of his first trial, Getz became very vocal about the problems he saw the city of New York facing and pushed for civilians to arm themselves. So like he just kept going, like I said, like you put a mic in front of his face and he was going to talk about what he felt were the issues. A month after the shootings, Daryl Kaby's mother filed a civil suit against Getz. The case was tried in 1996, and it was during this trial that more and more damning evidence began to surface. During examination, KB's lawyers brought to light a history of racist remarks made by Getz. At a city hall meeting, he had stated that the only way to clean up the streets of New York was to get rid of the N-words and the spicks. No. Mm-hmm. It gets worse, right? Like, And people are still on his side. At this point, it started to falter a little bit because, again, like, there's so much that was coming out. Uh Um, But, yes, I think, like, a lot of people still kind of felt like he had been in the right. Yeah. But you just can't with words, like, with stuff like this. No. Uh, He later admitted to having said that he believed that the guys I shot represented the failure of society and to forget about their ever making a positive contribution to society. So he had already made up his mind that these four teenagers Mm -hmm. were a waste of space and would never, ever contribute anything positive. Even though he had no idea about their background. Didn't know their background, didn't know them. Didn't know their names. Nothing. Yeah. To add insult to injury, Getz admitted that he believed that KB's mother should have had an abortion and that he considered the teens a guaranteed formula for disaster and misery. Oh, my gosh. And so they ask him, like, basically, like, do you still feel this way? And he's kind of like, I mean, yeah, like, (laughs) yes, I know. The jury, which was made up of four black people and two Hispanics, found that Getz had acted recklessly and had deliberately inflicted emotional distress on KB, stating that shooting KB twice was a key factor in their decision. Mm -hmm. They awarded KB $43 million, $18 million for pain and suffering, and $25 million for punitive damages. Getz immediately filed for bankruptcy, stating that his legal expenses had left him penniless. So the KB family never gotten a penny from him. KB's lawyers, however, stated that the goal was never to win money from the civil suit, but to have a public vindication for Mm -hmm. Daryl KB and to expose Bernard Getz for who he truly was. Mm -hmm. The New York State legal standard for the self-defense justification use of deadly force shifted after these rulings. So that's good. Yeah. Right. You know, New York state jurors are now told to consider a defendant's background and to consider whether a hypothetical, reasonable person would feel imperiled if that reasonable person were the defendant. And for those who might not be familiar with the reasonable person standard, the quote unquote reasonable person is a hypothetical individual who approaches any situation with the appropriate amount of caution and then sensibly takes action. It is a standard created to provide courts and juries with an objective test that can be used in deciding whether a person's actions constitute negligence. And if you're anything like me, you might be thinking that it's impossible to apply this reasonable person standard objectively to everyone across the board. What is reasonable to me, based on my past experiences, may not be reasonable to someone else with different life experiences. And while it's great that New York jurors are now being told to consider a defendant's background, I personally feel like it still leaves so much room for subjective thinking and reasoning. Mm -hmm. Agree. 
it's just so hard. Like I, it is. It's so because hard. You feel like anything that you would do is reasonable. No one's right. like, dude, I'm so unreasonable. Right. My now. truth is my truth, but yeah. your truth is yours. Mm-hmm. And you can't, you cannot argue that. So the story is a great example of the marginalization of the worth of a black life when it's seen as incidental to a hero's story and the legal precedent that was set when Getz was only convicted of a criminal gun possession was and still is a great threat to all people of color whose lives are still viewed as less than. Then like now, many were convinced that a double standard had been at work in this case and in many others. If a white youth had been shot in similar circumstances by a black man, what would have been the outcome? It's not far off to think that had the roles been reversed and a black man had shot four white teens, the cry for the death penalty would have been automatic. Mm -hmm. Especially in the manner that he did it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. This case sanctioned dangerous vigilante actions on the part of misguided citizens. It's hard not to see much of today's reality reflected in this case. The story of a black unarmed person being killed at the hands of a white individual acting as a vigilante or law enforcement officer. And it's been told one too many times. As Representative Elon Omar has said in the past, police, or in this case vigilantes, cannot be judge, jury, and executioner. That's true. To say that what happened in this case was strictly a product of 1980s New York City and was not racially motivated, and that Getz's actions were not fueled by prejudices would be dangerous and negligent. Mm -hmm. This case shares a lot of similarities with the case of Trayvon Martin. On February 26, 2012, Trayvon Martin, an African-American 17-year-old, was walking home from a trip to a nearby convenience store. This story is always hard to hear. Yeah. George Zimmerman, captain of the Neighborhood Watch, called the non-emergency line of the Sanford police to report that Martin looked suspicious, but ignored the dispatcher's advice to not follow the young man. Moments later, gunfire rang out, and when officers arrived, Martin was dead. The case sparked protest and ignited national debates about racial profiling and self-defense laws. Zimmerman was charged with second-degree murder but was acquitted of the charges against him. The shooting drew national attention to Florida's controversial stand-your-ground law, which allows people to use lethal force if they fear for their safety and does not require them to retreat from a dangerous situation, even when it's possible to do so. It blows my mind. I'm surprised that it's still held when Trayvon wasn't doing anything to him. Like he wasn't following him. He wasn't on his property. So he started to follow him and there was some sort of physical altercation that took place because he had like bruise cut, whatever, because he did have like blood on him. George did. But my thing is like it only got to that point because you decided to follow this Mm -hmm. kid who wasn't bothering you, who wasn't doing anything. Like you literally went out of your way, which this is what bothers me is like if you're in a dangerous situation and it's possible for you to leave you should leave right but this is this goes even further as far as like there was no situation you created a situation you created the the physical altercation like Mm -hmm. you created a dangerous situation for yourself and then decided like well no i should have the right to stand my ground like he wasn't doing anything. His his dad's fiance lived in this like gated community. Mm-hmm. He was just walking back home. Like it sucked. Like it was so sad. Like they were. It was over the NBA All Star weekend, and so just based on my husband, like that's such a fun weekend for people who basketball, mm-hmm. right? Like so they were watching the NBA All Star game, and he just happened to go and want to get snacks or whatever. Mm-hmm. And it's just like so sad that that one trip changed everything and just ended his life for no reason right if anything 
he had the right to stand his ground. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And and I think that that's what he did. I believe he was on the phone with someone, I, it, mm-hmm. like a friend or something. He said like, oh, this cracker is following me or whatever. And then at one point referred to the guy as like the N-word. Mm-hmm. Just like black people do, like mm-hmm. they just use the word. And so they were trying to say that the fact that he had used those like words made it like a racially motivated fight. But mm-hmm. it's like, well, he's only saying that because someone was following him and that's what he was telling his friend like there's this guy following me for no reason Mm -hmm. and then suddenly he's dead like i mean based on zimmerman's call based on trayvon's call it all everything goes back to george yeah similar to getz zimmerman was recorded saying things that would lead one to believe that it may have been more than just an act of self-defense while on the phone with the dispatcher zimmerman was recorded saying fucking punks these assholes always get away again already having that preconceived mm-hmm. notion that without like knowing who they are without knowing anything about him or anything yet he continued to claim that he had acted in self-defense critics of the standard ground law including many police officers say that the law encourages vigilantes to shoot first and ask questions later while some prosecutors think that juries not judges should be the ones to decide this the self-defense issue yes these not guilty verdicts continue to send the message that it's okay to shoot and kill black unarmed people and not be held accountable. And unfortunately, these stories do not have happy endings because we continue to hear of similar cases in our world today. But stories like this do remind us that we must continue to fight for a just world in which racial prejudices do not continue to allow for the deaths of unarmed and innocent people of color. These cases force a conversation around self-defense laws and standard ground But more importantly, they forced the discussion of what the value is of a young black man's life. So that's the story of Bernie Getz and, um, you know, just kind of how it's still something that we continue to see today. I thought that the Trayvon case was a very similar situation Mm -hmm. in today's reality. And there's been so many since Trayvon. Mm -hmm. So it's definitely something that is very sad. And like I said, it's really, I finished this and I was like, there's no happy ending. No. You know, like there's no bright spot or there's, you know, there's none of this. And that like kind of made me sad for a moment Mm because I was like, this is just sad story to be telling. But like I said, I think that it's such a good reminder for us to continue to push for the fight, to continue to support Black Lives Matter, to continue to vote and to use our voices to Mm -hmm. change, to cause change, you know, in the last episode that I did, I was like manifesting the election of Joe Biden. We're here. Mm-hmm. It happened, but it's not the end. And it's definitely not just cause to let up on all of these issues. It's yeah. more of a reason to continue to push to hold these people accountable, both him and Kamala, mm-hmm. for all of the things that we've been fighting for and need to continue to fight for. So that's kind of where I had to find some sort of like silver, silver lining. lining. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay, so, and just a fun fact about Bernie Getz, because like I've been saying, this guy was super weird. So he goes through the trial, he ends up being acquitted, Mm -hmm. spends 250 days in jail. So what is he doing now? He lives in the same exact apartment he lived in when this all happened in the 80s. He never moved. He's become like a hardcore, like vegan and like animal cruelty activist. Mm -hmm. He ran for mayor in November of 2013 but then was arrested and taken into custody after selling $30 worth of marijuana to an undercover cop. (laughs) They were, the charges were dropped, but the last like super fun fact is that he lives with squirrels. So like (laughs) he like 
helps like if he sees like a wounded squirrel or whatever he like brings it back home and like treats it and like just lives with it i'm not gonna lie if my husband let me do that I might also have squirrels. And I'm also not going to lie, I have a cousin that had a pet squirrel. Here's the thing. <laughs> I'm not judging him for the squirrel because, again, like, same. If I could have a squirrel, I would have a squirrel. Yeah. So this is, I don't want to say it's controversial. It but is it's controversial. controversial for a lot of people. My Amplify Corner today is Every Town for Gun Safety. Every Town is a movement of Americans working together to end gun violence and build safer communities. Today, more than 4 million people have joined together to make their own community safer. The symbolism behind the name Every Town is that it starts with you, it starts with us, and it starts in every town. The U.S. gun homicide rate is 25 times higher than that of other high-income countries. In Pennsylvania, for example, black people are 19 times as likely to die by gun homicide as white people, and in 2015, half of all gun homicides in the U.S. took place in only 127 cities, which it sounds like a lot, 127. Yeah. But there are so many cities in the U.S. that 127 seems very concentrated. That's true. You know? Mm -hmm. um, donations to uh, every town help sustain vital work of blocking reckless gun bills, passing common sense laws like background checks on all gun sales, mobilizing grassroots supporters to educate communities about gun safety, electing gun sense candidates and defeating the NRA's dangerous agenda across America. So I only say it's controversial because I know that there's a lot of people who vote a certain way based on wanting to keep the right to bear arms. Mm -hmm. But I think that both you and I don't want to get rid of that right for no, people. No, not at all. We want it to make sense. Yes. We want it to be, we want guns to be in the hands of the right people. We want to make it not hard but we want to make sure that there are background checks, that there's psychological tests, that people who need them have them, mm -hmm. that we're educating people like Sandy can go into this, but Sandy's family has owns guns mm -hmm. and they have taught their daughter not only how to use it, but how to use it safely. All the gun safety rules she had to memorize prior to ever being able to touch anything. Not that she touches guns. She doesn't. <laughs> but <laughs> like, she's like, Woo! yeah, no, she doesn't touch any guns. But um, like she has a bow and arrow, mm -hmm. things like that. Memorization first of the safety rules prior. So there's definitely safe ways to go about right. things like that. And, and, you know, like Tim and I are living in this house by ourselves. It's the first time we have like a house, like a standalone mm -hmm. house and not like an apartment. Like we were living in an apartment that had an underground parking lot and had like a door that you had to get a, mm -hmm. have a code to get through so now that we're here and it's just kind of like out in the open it's <laughs> definitely something that we were like we need to get a home security system because yeah. who knows and we're not in a bad part of town no. but it's just that sense of like anything can happen now right like it's literally just a door in a garage keeping mm -hmm. us from anyone who might want to come in and rob us and so it's come up i don't think we're ever going to have a gun but that's not something we're trying to take away from people. We just want to make sure that our schools are safe. Mm -hmm. Like we grew up not having to worry about school shootings. School shootings. We did. We our drills were fire drills. Yeah. Not school shooting drills. And that's an actual reality for a lot of the kids, for your kids, mm -hmm. for my future kids. Like that is a reality. That's something that they're going to have to practice. And it's, it's a sad reality. So mm -hmm. all we want to do is make it safer, make it a safer world. Keeping guns around because guns do keep certain people safe, mm -hmm. but just in a better way. Yeah. Things are not working out right now. <laughs> you know? Yeah. 
Um, but also a like second one or like a side note, Trayvon Martin Foundation is out there. And so um, the Trayvon Martin, Martin Foundation was founded with the goal of increasing awareness about the effect of violence on families while scrutinizing racial and gender crime profiling. They have encouraged diverse audiences from colleges and legal professions to community and family organizations to become more educated on ways to keep their loved ones safe and empower themselves to become catalyst for social change. Your donations allow the Trayvon Martin Foundation the opportunity to find solutions for youth, help parents who have been victimized by senseless violence, provide scholarships to inner city youth, rebuild relationships, and strengthen a positive self-image within the community. Both of those are very important. Yeah. If you can, donate, get involved, learn. Learning is the biggest thing. It mm-hmm. really is just becoming educated. Mm-hmm. So that's my story for today. Um, Sandy and I kind of touched on this earlier, and both of us, I think, kind of agreed that there is a reality in which Bernie gets felt threatened and acted in self-defense based on his experiences, mm-hmm. but also acted based on his racial prejudices and it's okay for both of those two things to exist concurrently but i think it's pretty safe to say that there was some racial Mm -hmm. he was operating off of both Uh uh-huh and it was a bad mix for them unfortunately yeah i really i really enjoyed this one because i could go on and on about how like oh but it could be this and oh it could be like it could be this or whatever so these type of cases are very interesting to me because it really comes to show that depending on who you are, depending on what you've been through and what you've seen, you will view this particular case in, in a different light. Mm-hmm. So I hope you guys enjoyed it. Thank you guys for listening. Thank you for listening. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review. I think we're still doing this, but if you write us a review and take a screenshot of it, send us a picture, we'll send you a free Unjustly sticker. Oh, yeah. Thanks for listening, guys. We'll see you next week. Thank you. Don't forget to follow us on Instagram and Facebook, Unjustly Podcast. And if you have questions, comments, concerns, you can message us on social media or you can send us an email, unjustlypodcast at gmail.com. See you next week, guys. See ya. Bye. I really want a meerkat. That's like meerkats are my favorite Steph, animal. have we had this conversation before? Because that's my favorite animal. No, it's my favorite Steph. animal. <laughs> And we're done. <laughs> he, he used to dress nice and kill people. <laughs> Subways are scary. Please, please, please rate and review us. Homicides in the city were at all-time highs, and the crap... I said crap. <laughs> the crap epidemic. <laughs> Detectives in New York City were mo- not mortified. They were notified. I'm sure they were mortified too, though. <laughs> I've been notified and mortified. <laughs> If you're anything like me, you might be thinking that it's impossible to apply this reasonable person standard to everyone across the board. Objectively. Bitch.